It's a joy and a pleasure to be with you today to worship God together, to spend this time uh, worshiping as a congregation and studying about His Word. This morning we're going to study the gospel, and maybe there's not a more appropriate topic we could talk about on a Sunday morning. But as we introduce our thoughts this morning, I want to ask you a question. What do you think of first when you see the phrase, the gospel? The gospel, or the word gospel, is a Greek word that is euangelion. It literally means good news, a good announcement. I would bet that most of us thought of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul describes the gospel in this way as he's uh, writing the letter to the Corinthians, and his definition to him is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. As Paul lays out a definition here for us, he's telling us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was told in the Scriptures, that was planned before time, is the good news. Salvation brought to God's people through this sacrifice. And what a beautiful message and gospel that is. Maybe some of you thought of the plan of salvation as we think about obeying the gospels as it says in the scriptures and the doctrine we've been taught. The gospel plan of salvation, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing His name before men, and being, being baptized for the remission of your sins. In the name of Jesus Christ, calling on the name of the Lord. In uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation. In Galatians 1, he describes the gospel as Jesus saving us from this present age. And so we see that the gospel has many aspects or many different ways that we can think of the gospel. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. I believe this is an integral piece of the gospel and a key message that we find in the teaching of the gospel. You say, Seth, what does the kingdom have to do with the gospel? And I'll tell you, as we read through the scriptures and as we study this morning, it has everything to do with the gospel. If we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As I was studying the book of Mark, as we were doing our book studies a couple years ago, this is something that stood out to me. As Jesus is proclaiming the gospel at the beginning of his ministry, what is he saying? He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe the good news. So he's not directly talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. Similarly, in Matthew chapter 24, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So, what was the gospel as Jesus described it at the beginning of his ministry? He's announcing that the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of God has arrived. So, as we look at the gospel accounts, specifically Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is all over its pages. Jesus is constantly talking about it. Maybe you're thinking about some parables right now where Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven. But as he begins his ministry, this is his message. He's saying, stop, repent, change your ways, because there's a kingdom coming, and you're going to want to be a part of it. So three things that we're going to con consider in our study today. Number one, what is the kingdom of God? 
Number two, why is this part of the gospel? Why is this part of the good news? And then how should we respond to the kingdom of heaven? So for us to understand what the kingdom is, I want to go back to the Old Testament and get some background information to see the context with which Jesus is bringing this message. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as it can be described either way in the Gospels, was used to represent a kingdom that was not of this world, one that comes directly from God above, comes from God himself. And Jesus, having a full understanding of the Scriptures, is showing that there's this anticipated kingdom that was supposed to come. It would not be from men, but it would be from God. And this kingdom is what God has invited men to be a part of from the very beginning. We first see a reference to ruling and reigning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every, living cre- every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. As God creates humans, He creates us special. He creates us in His image. And what did He call humans to do? To have dominion over the rest of creation. So God invites mankind into His kingdom. And in this state in the beginning where Adam and Eve had this unstained relationship with God, they were fully submitting to His will, fully submitting to His commandments. And they had this relationship in which they could talk to one another directly. This is the kingdom that God had in mind, living in harmony, God and man. But two chapters later, we see the story of all humankind, right? We see the story in our own lives. When given the option to submit to God's kingdom, God's rule, or establish ourselves as king, what do we choose? Oftentimes we choose to be our own king. And in the garden, the serpent told Eve the lie that you can be like God's knowing good and evil. You can be your own boss. You can be your own God. And so they fall to that temptation. They fall into that sin and take of the forbidden fruit and violate the commandment of God. As we go on through the Old Testament, we see humanity fall deeper into sin and destruction. But God shows He's still willing to bring His kingdom here on earth. And He chooses a specific people to be the vessel by which He will establish this kingdom. He first invites the Israelites to be part of this kingdom, to be this kingdom on earth. As he rescues them from Egypt, out of slavery, he tells them this in Exodus chapter 19. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So as he calls them up out of Egypt, he tells them he wants them to be a special kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a nation that's set apart from the others. Remember this verbiage as we'll come back to the end. Uh, and at the end of our study, we'll see this again. But what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, in the ancient context, priests were the way that the common man would have access to God. And so God is inviting them to be this special nation that would bring a blessing to all other nations, that through them they could have access to God, these other nations. In Leviticus, God says, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So this was the kingdom God, uh, that God had in mind for the Israelites, one that submitted to Him 
as the true king. And for a period of about 400 years, the Israelites had no earthly or no human king to rule over them. But what happens with Israel? We see the same story play out and that they reject God's rule and they descend into following their own desires. Not only this, but they begin to think that this kingdom was something of their own establishment instead of God's. And so they ask for a human king. They come to the prophet Samuel and say, we want a king just like the other nations. And Samuel laments this fact and he brings it to God. And 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So this request was a direct rejection of God and the kingdom that he wished to establish in them. And so here we see them slowly descend into following after sin, after their own desires, doing what's right in their own eyes. And even though there are some good kings that at times steer the nation in the right direction, that submit to God, even these kings are flawed. And then there's some really bad kings that push this nation further into destruction. And eventually, the whole nation of Israel ends up in captivity, given over to the heathen nations. And so as we get to the prophets, and the prophets as uh, throughout time as it's leading up to captivity, and even during captivity, the prophets begin to tell about or, or show us that we need, there needs to be a new kingdom. And there needs to be a new human that can bring this kingdom to men. This was first spoken to David as he, uh, God told him that he would establish a king whose reign would be forever, that would come from the line of David. And so this man that is spoken of here is referenced throughout all the prophets, and he becomes known as the Messiah, or the Anointed One, or the Christ. And I've picked out just a few here, but there are prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that speaks of this man and speaks of the kingdom that he would bring. He's called Wonderful Counselor. He's going to bring justice. He's going to reign forever. He's going to bring justice to the nations. He's going to gather Israel back to himself. Kings are going to bow down to him. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones that are brought back to life, he restores Israel. And he's a new king from the line of David that would call his people to truly submit to God's will. I want to look at two prophecies in particular in the book of Daniel that talk about this kingdom. So the king of Babylon... As the Israelites are in captivity, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream. And it's about this statue, and it's made up of all these different layers. The statue's made out of uh, different metals from the earth. And each of these layers represents a different kingdom, a different empire that would exist here on earth. And then there's this stone that's made without hands that comes and strikes the image at its feet crushes it to bits, and then it grows to fill the entire earth. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever, just as you saw that, that, stone, that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. 
What a picture we have here. This nation is going to, to come, destroy the other nations, grind them into bits, and fill the whole earth. And as an Israelite, man, what a message that is. I want to be a part of this kingdom, right? Well, it gets better. Later in chapter 7, it's prophesied again. And these four kingdoms are shown as different beasts. And God takes away the rule of the beasts, and He establishes His kingdom. And He establishes a human to reign over that kingdom. kingdom. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is sounding pretty sweet, right? And as an Israelite in the time of Christ, knowing the prophets, knowing that the fourth beast is reigning right now, Rome, I am living in full anticipation that the Messiah could come in my lifetime. Living in full anticipation that this kingdom will come. That the Messiah is going to come as this mighty leader. He's going to kick the Romans out. And he's going to rule over Israel as king. And so as we come to the Gospels and we come to the New Testament, this is the anticipation that has been built. And this is why Jesus calls it the good news. This is why he announces the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So why is this part of the gospel? Why is this part of the good news? We've kind of answered the question already, but what does it have to do with the gospel? Well, in the historical context, the word gospel had a different meaning than we think of it today. As we think about some of the, the words we use common in the phrases, they, I don't mean this in a bad way, but they come with a lot of baggage, things that we've attached to them. And so the gospel, we, we think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think about the way it's talked about in the epistles. But the word in Greek and Hebrew means good news. Now, this isn't your everyday news that you turn on, and today at 5, we'll tell you the news of the day. But it usually came from a king or to a king. It was a political announcement. And God uses it to announce salvation to His people. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. So as God announces the good news here, He's announcing salvation. He's announcing peace. This is one of the most famous prophecies of the Messiah, leading right into chapter 23 about the, or 53 about the suffering servant. This was the good news that had been promised. It also has a historical pre precedent as the Greek was used in a similar way. This is an example from a birthday announcement uh, of Caesar from the calendar of, of Preen. And I struggle not to say this in like a town crier with a bit of pomp to it, but you can hear the uh, message dripping off of this, and I'll read it now. So, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set a most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, 
surpassing all previous benefactors, and not leaving to the posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. So good tidings, that's euangelion, that's gospel. So it was used in a historical context as well. What's hilarious about reading this when compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the Roman Caesars offered uh, death and destruction through war. They didn't offer salvation and peace. And so as we look to what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4, I think it takes, makes total sense why he is announcing the gospel as the arrival of the kingdom of God. This is the mark of a new era, a new kingdom, and a new king. And the whole world is going to be forever changed by this good news. And so the gospel accounts are written with this context and written so that they can convince you or show you that Jesus is the Messiah and He is heir to the throne of this kingdom. As we read through the gospels, we'll see what the kingdom is. We'll see what it's about and see the surprising nature of the kingdom. And I believe that as we study this, it'll daily challenge us as followers of Christ. This is one of the main messages of the gospel, showing us what the kingdom is. And once you see it, it can't be unseen. I think of this picture that of a duck that's also a picture of a rabbit. Maybe you've seen it before, but depending on how you look at it, and maybe you squint one eye, it can look like a duck or a rabbit. And once you see it, it can't be unseen. And the same is of the gospel of the kingdom of God in heaven. Look at the number of times this phrase is mentioned throughout the gospels in the book of Acts. Somewhere around 75 times. Many of us can think about some of these teaching off the top of our head, how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So the gospels are deeply concerned with showing us what the kingdom of God is. And this is just the phrase, the kingdom of God or heaven, not just general references to the kingdom. So these books are all about the kingdom of God. This is part of the good news that we share. But as we look to this kingdom, Jesus is not the kingdom that maybe we would have expected, right? It looks quite a bit different than nations or empires of the world. And so the kingdom of heaven looks quite a bit different. The first major difference is who the kingdom comes to. So let's think about this for a sec. If I'm claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to bring this nation, uh, this new kingdom to Israel, what am I going to need? Who am I going to recruit? Well, I'm going to need some strong individuals, right? Some people that know how to fight. I'm going to have to have an army, and I'm going to have to have them on my side, and because there's going to be people that disagree with me, and I might need to have ways to coerce them into believing what I have to share with them. I'm probably going to need some merchants and some, some rulers to be on my side, because I'm going to have to finance this campaign. And then I'm going to have to get the priests on my side because they're going to have to confirm that I'm from God, that I am the Messiah. The funny thing is, this is what the kingdoms of earth do. This is what the kings of earth do. This isn't what Jesus does. Who did Jesus recruit to his kingdom? If we look at Matthew chapter 4, we begin to see who Jesus calls to his kingdom. So the first people that he calls to be his set of core disciples are everyday people, fishermen. He calls four fishermen, tells them to drop their nets, and he has a simple message, follow me. 
He also has everyday people like tax collectors, like religious zealots. It doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but who does he bring his message to? Here in the lower part uh, of this, this verse here, these verses, later part of chapter 4, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, healing every disease, going to those who are oppressed by demons, those who have seizures, the paralytics, and he's healing them. So Jesus is bringing the kingdom to those who need it most. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, he's preaching to the gospel to those who are less fortunate, preaching the gospel to those who need salvation. And we see the same story line up in the other gospels. Jesus is taking his message to those who are lowly here on earth, to those who are looked down on, those who are disabled, those who are lost, those who are oppressed, those who need healing. One thing that we should take away from this is that as people come to Jesus and they experience Him and they experience the kingdom, they walk away with their lives completely and totally changed. Their lives are dramatically different. And by doing this, Jesus demonstrates that the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is for everyone, especially for those who are lowly. There's no special treatment in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone is regarded the same. In fact, Jesus goes to those who are lowly first and shows that the kingdom is open to all who would accept his invitation to follow him. So it's not a typical kingdom. Yes, it's come here on earth, but it's not a physical kingdom. It's one that's established in the Spirit. So what does it look like? What does it look like when the kingdom of heaven comes here on earth? Well, we think about Matthew chapter 4 as he's spreading the gospel and he's preaching about the good news of the kingdom, directly what follows that is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And here we see this in the context of the arrival of the kingdom. As I thought about this study, I thought it'd make a great introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount paints a beautiful picture of people who belong to the kingdom of God. In Jesus' teachings here about the kingdom, we see radical teaching, about how we ought to esteem others higher than ourselves, how we ought to treat ourselves, how we ought to treat others. And as we read through this, Jesus is going to step on your toes a little bit. And if we read through this honestly, there's going to be things that we realize we need some work on. And maybe if we read through this as a congregation, we'll see that there's things that we need to work on. And if we read through this and don't find some things where we're not fulfilling the kingdom of heaven, then maybe the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to us. So I like to take some parts of this, but I'm not so good at others, right? I really love all of you in this room, but it's hard for me to love my enemies. The people who despise me and who hate me, I'd rather wish death and destruction on them. And so I, if I take Jesus and I follow him, I have to follow all of his teachings. And so as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, while the nations of this earth send out their armies send out tanks and ships and weapons of war, who does Jesus send out? He sends out the meek. 
He sends out the merciful. He sends out the peacemakers. He sends out those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are the people that are the salt of the earth, the light to those around them, and the city that's set on a hill. Because when they share the gospel with others, those people walk away with their lives being changed, being different. I think this sheds a new light on the Lord's Prayer as He prays in Matthew 6, verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. How does the kingdom spread here on earth? How does the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? It's by the faithful testimony of those whose lives have been fundamentally changed by the kingdom. Our lives have been changed by Jesus Christ, and it's through our testimony and through our acts of love, mercy, and forgiveness that others see the kingdom as well. So how does the arrival of this kingdom offer salvation? It's through its king, Jesus Christ. Mark 10, verses 44 and 45, it says, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As the king of this new nation, this new kingdom, Christ's mission on earth was to serve others. That doesn't make any sense for the king to be the servant. And so he came here on earth, so not, not so he could be lifted up, but that he could lift others up, that he could restore his creation back to God. And so ultimately, his service in this new kingdom would cost him his life. You see, the Jewish leaders at the time didn't like this gospel. They thought that the Messiah would be a military leader, would set up the kingdom here on earth, kick the Romans out, have a physical kingdom. They didn't like Christ's teaching. And to the Romans, this was also a dangerous message. Claims of being a new king could easily get you killed. And so as we see Jesus go to Jerusalem, going towards his death, he's going up head to head against the kingdoms of this world and the death and destruction and the lies that they cause. But instead of Christ fighting a physical battle, he freely lays down his life, freely gives it up for the good of his people. At the end of the Gospels, we see that Jesus is being enthroned as the rightful heir as he hangs on the cross. He is being inaugurated as a new type of king, one who lives as a servant, one who calls his followers to follow in his example. And so Christ's kingdom is not of this world because what Christ has done in inaugurating this new kingdom, he was raised again on the third day, giving us hope of eternal life. So this is a spiritual kingdom that calls for the hearts of its citizens. So how should we respond to the gospel of the kingdom? Well, we should live like Jesus Christ is king. We should live like true citizens of this kingdom. I think that we easily lose sight of what this actually means. We've kind of talked about how Sometimes these phrases or these concepts get watered down and maybe lose their meaning for us over time. And think about where we currently live, the good old U.S. of A., right? We're a government for the people, by the people, the greatest experiment in human governance that's ever been seen. We elect our leaders. If we don't like them, we vote them out of office. We've got no frame of reference for what it's like to live under 
a monarchy or to live under a dictatorship. And if we think about those in the time of Christ who were subject to Caesar's rule, to what his wants and wishes were that could change at the drop of a hat, and Rome that ruled with an iron fist, the the choice was clear to them. You can have Jesus who offers to be your servant, who gave his life to you, or you can have Caesar who oppresses you. So the choice was clear for them. In Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man to his own things, but every man also to the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To live like Jesus is king is to follow his example. And because what Christ has done for us, it motivates, motivates us to live for others, to esteem others higher than ourselves. And because what Christ has done, this is the reason that he was enthroned. Paul goes on here to say that because Christ has done this, he made himself of no reputation, came and died for your sins, he's been given a name that's higher than any other name. And he's been made king. And so as we think about serving others, we think about what the kingdom looks like here on earth, I'm reminded of... uh, Conversation that, I wasn't going to do this. A conversation that my brother had with my Mimi, and she told him that you can have such an impact on people just by loving them. I practiced that and it went perfect every time until now. You can have such an impact on others just by loving them. And the way we show the kingdom on here on earth is by serving each other. We've all been blessed by the kingdom whether you've been invited over for a meal, whether you've been visited in the the hospital, whether you've been cried with, laughed with, or someone shared the gospel with you first. We've all seen the kingdom of God if we've seen these things. And so we think about traditional human wisdom, right? Right? And how the kingdom of heaven flips these things upside down. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the upside down kingdom, used to describe the kingdom of God. I've heard this a lot over the last couple of years and thought that maybe it was some progressive Christian jargon uh, for, that was maybe hot and trendy at the time. But I came across Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. So Paul and Silas, as they are preaching the gospel, they make a section of the Jews angry, and they bring out this man Jason who has housed them, And this is what they say as they bring them to the city officials. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So something that was part of Paul and Silas' message was that there's a new king out there. There's a new kingdom. He's better than Julius Caesar. Not Julius Caesar. He's better than Caesar. Those get stuck in my head together. And as we think about the nature of the kingdom of God, there's a lot of things that are upside down about it. There's a lot of things that turns man's wisdom on its head. Loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. These things don't make sense to us, valuing others over ourselves. And so Christ has called us to live in this kingdom. To live like the Sermon on the Mount. And in doing so, 
we proclaim the kingdom of God. And that's why we submit ourselves to a higher moral standard, why we hold others better than ourselves. It's because what Christ has done for us and called us to be. I think we get distracted today because we literally hear a new gospel every two to four years. If you think about the election cycle, we just had an election. Some of you can probably think of those gospels that they preach. I can think of two in particular. Make America great again. It's going to be huge, right? Build back better. You know the thing. But the thing is, is that these, are, these gospels are nothing when compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, is, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, we see this language from Exodus chapter 19. God calls us today as part of the church and as followers of Christ to be this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a group that's set apart, that lives out God's commands because it's been shown to us. So as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, let's start acting like it. Let's act like we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's only by you that someone may come to know this kingdom. And I believe that the gospel message is shared in the context of the kingdom. As we read through the epistles and the letters that were sent and we read about the gospel, I believe it's preloaded with the context of the kingdom of God. And so it's our turn to preach the kingdom of heaven. As we conclude today, I hope that you've been benefited by the study. I hope that you've been able to see the kingdom of God, and I hope that it'll help you better live out the kingdom of God. I believe that this was a key part to the gospel that Christ was, was sharing just by the number of times that he mentions the kingdom. And I hope that as you go through your studies of the Bible, that you study with this, uh, with this in mind. And I think if we do that, we'll start seeing things that we haven't seen before. So as the kingdom of God, we all look to the needs of others. And we come together as a community and are always there for each other. And we're there for those who are outside of the kingdom, who don't currently have the kingdom. And we want to offer an invitation this morning. Christ invites you into this amazing kingdom, but it requires a change of heart. It requires a change of spirit. In John chapter 3, verse 5, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So as Jesus offers you the invitation to follow him, he asks that you be born again. Be born of the water and of the Spirit. To be baptized into his death, and you'll be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. It's an act of submission to him as the true king. Sometimes we can drift off the path. Sometimes we can start feeling like the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to us. And that in our choices that we've chosen to elevate ourselves as a king instead of submitting to Christ as a king. As Jesus preached to the Pharisees, he told them this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The kingdom is 
given and shown to those who produce the fruits of it. And we've seen some of those fruits here today. And as Christians and as the church, we need to be proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. We have a perfect example of what those fruits look like. So if you feel like you're in danger of losing the kingdom, maybe you feel like you've fallen short and you need prayers of the church, we can pray for restoration and we can help you. So let us all hold fast to the kingdom and the peace and the joy and the salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ and truly live each day like he is king. Won't you come while we stand and sing?